Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 59. Thanks for joining me. I hope that you are doing well. Now, there are some exciting things happening at HSPA, and there's a lot of great information, and I want to share some of that information with you today. So first, let's talk about the upcoming HSPA leadership election. In 2022, HSPA will be filling the following leadership positions. So first, we have the president-elect, and the president-elect will serve consecutive one-year terms as president-elect, then president, and past president. So president-elect from 22 to 23 And then they will serve as president from 2023 to 2024, and then past president in 24 to 25. Now, the next position is secretary and treasurer. Now, the secretary and treasurer will serve a two-year term. And then we have three. That's three director positions open, and they will serve a two-year term. Now, this is important. Voting will take place today right now, March 15th through April 6th, 2022. Now, one of the benefits to being a member is that you get to vote. You have to be a current member to vote in this election. Now, how do you become a member? Well, man, that's a great question. Next time you renew your certification, add the $10, that's what I said, $10, member fee. So uh, typically certification is $50, which is the cheapest of all the associations. The certification, $50, add $10. So help me do the math here. That's $60. A, uh, a number two, to put it in perspective, a number two at McDonald's is about $10. So skip one quarter pounder meal in a year, add that 10 bucks to your certification, and become a member. It's just that easy. Become a member and enjoy all the member benefits that are included with membership, which includes voting in the elections. Okay, I'm done with my rant. So uh, I'm gonna talk to you about the candidates. Now I'm gonna give you their name, job position, and place of employment. Now, I want you to take some time. I want you to do some homework here. I want you to take some time to get to know your candidates by reading their full bio, which includes the HSPA industry involvement, along with some answers to these questions. Now, each of the candidates are answering these questions, and you can read all about it. So first question, why do you want to serve on the HSPA board of directors? 
Next question, describe the critical issues you think the sterile processing professional will face over your possible board tenure. And what is HSPA's role in addressing those issues? Next question, how would you support the current mission and vision of HSPA? Describe any unique qualifications such as leadership, life, business expertise that may set you apart from other candidates and the position uh, to be filled as an effective leader. Now, these answers for each of the candidates can be found on the myhspa.org website. On that main page, all you have to do is hover over the About tab and select 2022 HSPA election. From that drop down menu, all right, and then from here, you can see the candidates read their bios, read their answers to all of these questions, and hopefully, this will help guide you to make an informed decision, an informed vote for each candidate. And again, uh, you can only vote if you have membership because membership has privileges. Now the candidates, who are we talking about? So for president-elect, the candidates are Anthony Bondin. He's manager of sterile processing, perioperative service department at HSHS St. John's Hospital, Springfield, Illinois. And then we have Monique Jelks, area director, sterile processing, Indiana and Tennessee, the resource group, Ascension Health, Indianapolis, Indiana. So great candidates, both for president-elect. So make sure you vote for one of those two. Make sure you go and read their full bios. Get the information on these candidates. Now for the secretary-treasurer candidate, we have Tammy Hickok, Director of Stealth Processing, St. Elizabeth Healthcare, Edgewood, Kentucky. And Jan Prudent, Manager Sterile Processing, Eastern Idaho, Regional Medical Center, Idaho Falls, Idaho. Again, another, uh, both of those are great candidates. So vote for the one uh, that you think will best do the job by reading those bios on the My HSPA website. And then the directors. So this is again, a two-year term. So the candidates are Sarah B. Cruz, CS Quality Education Program Development Coordinator, the Bone and Joint Institute at Hartford Hospital HHC, Hartford, Connecticut. Then we have uh, Densley Coke, Manager Sterile Processing, Northside Hospital, Cumming, Georgia. Then we have Brandon Gant, Manager SPD Education and Training, EHI Shared Surgical Services, Emory Healthcare Incorporated, Duluth, Georgia. Next we have Beat Grader, Director Sterile Processing, Caramount Health, Caramount Health Regional Medical Center, Gastonia, North Carolina. Next, we have Ken Hare, Assistant Manager, Sterile Processing, UC San Diego Health, Jacobs Medical Center, La Jolla, California. And then last but not least, Hafiz Abul Menon, in charge, CSSD, Hamid Latif Hospital, Lahore, Pakistan. So it's great to see an international on this list. So again, read the bios, go back, research these candidates and make an informed decision 
on the upcoming election, March 15th through April 6th. Now it's time for What's On My Mind. All right, let me tell you what's on my mind today. Today and almost every other day, what's on my mind is San Antonio. Conference time is getting closer, and I am super excited about the expo floor and the educational speakers. In fact, for the first time ever, now this first time ever, there is going to be a research track available at the conference. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is that exciting? Why is having a research track available? Why is that exciting at all? Well, this means that folks are paying attention to sterile processing. Folks are devoting time and money to figure out how we, the folks in sterile processing, can do our job better, right? And they're sharing and they're publishing this information. And this is important information. So have you ever tried to uh, get a surgeon to change his or her practice to do something different? Well, you know, from my experience, one of the first things that comes out of their mouth is, where's the evidence, right? Where's the research? You know, and if you don't have uh, research or evidence, then it's like talking to a brick wall. You might as well just forget it. They don't care, right? They don't care unless there's a paper written about it, then they might think about changing their practice. They might think about doing something different. They might think about using a different uh, supply or tool or instrument or something, right? That's why research, that's why publishing in uh, these journals, respected journals, is so important. And at our conference, at this conference, we're going to have folks share some of that research, right? Some things that can be done that are improving our profession. You know, research and evidence, it moves industry forward. So be the first people, be the very first ones to hear the exciting new things that are happening in sterile processing. And besides all that, you deserve a break. You know, the last few years have been rough, right? It's time to relax a little, Learn a lot in San Antonio with me. Now, speaking of relaxing, it's something I like to do. When you think about Texas, and I'm on, it seems like the last few episodes, that's all I do is talk about Texas. But hey, I live here. It's a great state. I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, don't fault me for that. When you think about Texas, you'll most likely think of San Antonio. Uh, we all know, or maybe we all should know about the Riverwalk. The Alamo, of course, SeaWorld, along with the rich Hispanic culture that San Antonio calls its own. Well, here I found some 10 things about San Antonio you probably didn't know. Unless you uh, have been listening to the podcast, because some of the things we're going to talk about 
I've uh, talked about in other podcasts. But uh, so credit to the 10 things goes to Miramila. February 9th, 2017. This information can be found on the culturaltrip.com website. So here we go. 10 things that you may not have known about San Antonio. San Antonio is the most visited city in Texas. With attractions like Six Flags Fiesta, the Riverwalk, and the historic Alamo site, it's no surprise that San Antonio is the most visited city in Texas. It's actually the 17th most visited city in the nation. Now that is a little surprising, but there you go. Church's Chicken first opened in San Antonio. This famous fried chicken fast food place started in 1952 as Church's Fried Chicken to go in San Antonio, right across the street from the Alamo. It's now the fourth largest chicken restaurant in the country behind KFC, Chick-fil-A, and Popeyes. Next fact, San Antonio is home to America's second oldest park. San Pedro Park is the oldest park in Texas and the second oldest in the nation. Well, that's interesting. It officially became a public park in 1852. The San Pedro Park is home to so much history. During the Civil War, the park was used as a prisoner of war camp. Now the park has over 60 hiking trails, swimming pools, skate park, the San Pedro Library, and much, much more. Now this is surprising to me. I didn't know this, but San Antonio the San Antonio Zoo is the third largest in the U.S. Now, I've been to the San Diego Zoo. I've been to the Fort Worth, Dallas Zoos. This was a little surprising. I've been to the Denver Zoo. You know, I've been to a few. But San Antonio is the third largest. So this 35-acre zoo has over 3,500 animals in an aquarium. It's the third largest zoo in the nation. And it breeds a number of endangered species including leopards, African lions, and Komodo dragons. Next fact, and again, not surprising on this one, the Alamo is the most visited attraction in all of Texas. Remember the Alamo. Everyone remembers the Alamo, or at least they should. More than 2.5 million people visit the Alamo a year, making it the most visited attraction in Texas. San Antonio is also home to the oldest church in Texas. The San Fernando Cathedral dates back to 1738, and it remains the heart of the Catholic religion in San Antonio. Over 5,000 people attend services in just one weekend. It's pretty cool. Now here's one of my favorite the San Antonio, and again, I've mentioned this before, San Antonio has a 10-day festival. Fiesta San Antonio is the city's largest and most attended fiesta. Fiesta San Antonio is the city's biggest and most attended festival. It happens every year in April. Ding, ding, ding. That's when we're going to be there. Happens every year in April and has done so since 1891. 
the festival began to honor the memory of the battles of the Alamo and San Jacinto. Now, more than 3 million people attend every year and more than 100 events are hosted within the festival. Sounds like a good time. I can't wait to attend that festival while I'm attending the conference in San Antonio. All right. Next on our list, the tower that can be seen from all over San Antonio, which is the Tower of Americas. It is a 750-foot tower that can be seen from anywhere in the city and was opened in 1968. The tower is the largest building in San Antonio and the 27th largest building in Texas. Plus, it has 952 steps. So good luck climbing that one. San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the U.S., behind cities like New York, Los Angeles. That's kind of surprising to me, too. San Antonio comes in seventh as the most populated city in the nation, and it's number two most populated in Texas behind Houston, with about 1.4 million peoples. Last, but certainly not least, the largest Mexican market outside of Mexico, El Mercado Shopping District's largest Mexican market in the U.S. It's a three-block outdoor plaza filled with a combination of 100 restaurant shops, handcrafts, and fresh produce stands. The shopping district also hosts many Hispanic festivals. So listen, this is going to be a great conference. There's going to be lots of stuff to do to relax. You know, you've, you've had it hard the last couple of years. There's going to be lots of things to do to relax and enjoy yourself. And then there's also going to be lots to learn at the conference. Now, if you live in Texas, you need to represent. Remember the Alamo, my friends. No excuses. Okay? So if you live in Texas, go ahead, jump on a Southwest flight... By the time you get beverage service, you'll be there in San Antonio. So I fully expect there to be a ratio of at least three to one. Three Texans to every one outsider. So they say everything is bigger and better in Texas. Well, the proof is in the pudding. So all my Texans out there, don't let me down. Join me in San Antonio. In the latest issue of Process Magazine, this is the March-April 2022 issue, there is a follow-up article to the research study that was printed in the American Journal of Infection Control. Now, this was the droplet dispersal study in decontamination. Now, if you didn't get a chance to read this article in the AGIC Journal, well, I did a podcast. I did a podcast. Uh, check it out. It's in episode number 53. Now, in that podcast, I summarize the article in the AGIC Journal in great detail, right? Because it's really important information. Now, I'm not telling you this to check out the podcast and boost some podcast numbers. I don't care. I'm not the numbers guy, right? I'm just the educator trying to give you information that can really change your practice. Now, the AGIC 
article or uh, the podcast number 53, you know, it's really reviewing that article, uh, should have you questioning your current practice. And that's why it's so important. Well, in the latest process article that we're talking about today, we're talking about the title, After AGIC, Decontamination Splash Study, Researchers Share What's Next for Sterile Processing Staff. The information is so good, I'm going to take time on this show to read this article to you. Even though, you know, I'm reading this article, make sure that you have a copy, right? You can always use a copy for your future reference. Again, it's good, good information. So the Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, in case you didn't know what that stands for, and scores of individuals within the sterile processing community read this article. The authors of it, uh, Corey Ofsted, we have Christina Hopkins, Abigail Smart, and Marie Brewer. Mark the first real-world evaluation of splashing from routine sterile processing functions in the decontamination area. So the researchers monitored splashing and droplet dispersal on personal protective equipment, PPE, and the environmental surfaces during manual cleaning of medical instrumentation by using moisture detection paper and documenting splashes with videos and photos. Now, the study data suggests that individuals who process reusable medical instrumentation and equipment may be exposed to tissue, blood, and patient fluid despite wearing recommended PPE. And that has left many sterile processing professionals wondering, what does this mean for their safety? And what can be done now to help mitigate these risks? Right? So these are, this is what should be concerning to you, is the possibility that you're getting contaminated even when wearing the PPE that you are supposed to. So now in this exclusive Q&A, lead author uh, Corey Ofsted, uh, president and CEO of Ofsted & Associates, and co-author, which is Marie Brewer, an HSPA member who served as sterile processing manager at Unity Point Health, St. Luke Hospital in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. They share with HSPA what surprised them most about their findings and offer valuable advice to help keep sterile processing technicians safer on the job, not only now, but in the future. So first question, what surprised you most about your study's findings? And Ofsted says, there were two findings. First, droplets were generated by almost every activity, no matter how carefully it was done, such as gently placing an instrument into the water versus dropping it in there and brushing or scrubbing under the surface of the water. Now, we've been led to believe that these practices prevent splashes, and we now know that they reduce splashes, but do not prevent droplet dispersal. Secondly, she says, they saw that PPE becomes drenched from head to toe within seconds of initiating manual cleaning, and even top-notch PPE Don correctly failed to prevent skin exposure, 
because the cleaning solutions entered gloves and splashed up around the neck, the chest area that were not covered by the PPE. Now a note from HSPA, as alarming as these results are, Brewer said that she expected the findings to be even worse. She explained how decontamination of certain instrumentation, such as those used in total joint procedures, can result in more significant splashing and droplet dispersal than what was seen in the pilot study. And I know many of you out there can relate to that. So she expressed an interest in a follow-up study that could demonstrate splashing and aerosolation risk associated with some of the more challenging devices. Very, very interesting. Next question. When it comes to PPE specifically, what can sterile processing professionals do right now to stay safe when working in decontamination areas? And then Offset responds, certainly wearing proper PPE from head to toe is critical and is important for all employees to always don, which is put on, and doff, which is remove, PPE properly. PPE should be considered highly contaminated when it's removed, so staff must be trained to doff properly every time. It is important to buy gowns and gloves sizes appropriately for all staff to always have those sizes readily available. You know, I think I, in the last podcast, if you listen to the last one, we talk about that bloodborne pathogen uh, from OSHA, right? And it states in there that PPE needs to fit, right? Not a one size fits all. It needs to fit everyone, right? So here we go. Here we have the research that's saying, yeah, it needs to fit everybody, every size available. Now she goes on to say there's a requirement to fit test for N95 respirator mask, but what about for all PPE? This would be considered an administrative control that leaders could implement to help keep their technicians safer. It would be important to fit test during activities and make sure all elements of PPE, including gowns and gloves, still fit properly and stay in place when staff members are actually performing their task. So gloves that with extended cuffs that stay up when working vigorously are preferred and fluid resistant gowns, shoe covers, face shields or goggles and masks should always be provided. Mask worn and decontam should never be reused. And if face shields are being reused, they should be cleaned and disinfected between uses. We also need to remember that PPE is extremely important, but it's the last layer of protection, you know, behind engineering and administrative controls. Engineering controls protect employees by removing or reducing hazard conditions, such as placing a barrier between the employee and the hazard. Administrative controls involve training and procedure or policy changes to reduce employee risk. It's a combination of those three that will improve employee safety. Now Brewer says, our departments are diverse and so are the people who work there. So our PPE also needs to be diverse. Wearing appropriately sized PPE is imperative and so is changing it frequently, especially your face mask. I also think we, as an industry, need to consider some sort of hood 
similar to the orthopedic hoods, to help protect the neck and other areas not adequately covered by current PPE. Next question, can we discuss the importance of proper hand washing after PPE is removed or before leaving the decontamination area? Now, Ofsted comments, after working in decontamination areas, hands and arms should be washed thoroughly up to the elbows and the face and neck should also be washed. You know, because in the study, they found that the splashing, you know, uh, affected unprotected areas of the neck. So interesting. We do recognize that some departments lack dedicated washing stations or face and neck cleansing. And some individuals have told us they prefer washing their faces only at home. In such cases, these individuals should wash their face and neck immediately when they get home before having close contact with family or others in the household. It is also critical to clean and disinfect work areas. Staff members should always assume all surfaces in the decontamination area are contaminated, and they should recognize that touching counters or other surfaces with contaminated hands or scrubs can further increase risk of cross-contamination. Next question, what advice would you give sterile processing professionals who might consider throwing their hands up and saying, if PPE doesn't even protect us thoroughly, why should we even bother? Now Brewer starts off, I encourage all sterile processing professionals to be a part of the change we need to improve technician safety. Use this as an opportunity to investigate and advocate for best practices through administrative controls and engineering controls. There are things we can do to improve our processes and again, consider fit testing for PPE as part of employee onboarding. Now Ofsted says, as an epidemiologist, we know that our bodies contain billions of bacteria and fungi, as well as viruses that coexist with our body tissue and actually help us thrive by assisting in digesting food and fighting off bad bugs. Now those who work in healthcare with children tend to have really strong immune systems because they get a lot of practice fighting off common germs and their bodies tend to contain a lot of diverse good bugs. The reason we don't want to get exposure to bad bugs is that enough exposure can allow them to take root. We call that getting colonized with bad bugs, which may live inside you or on your skin for a long time without causing trouble. But you can pass those bad bugs to others. And sometimes they can overwhelm even strong immune systems. For each type of germ, you need to be exposed to a certain amount before you get infected. This refers to viral or bacterial load. What we can do right now is try to reduce our exposure volume. And that's where proper consistent use of PPE comes into play. And also why we need to adopt good administrative and engineering controls. Now, next question from HSPA. Let's talk about some of those engineering and administrative controls. What do you see as some good tactics to reduce staff risk associated with splashing and droplet dispersal? Now, Brewer says, 
sterile processing leaders need to carefully review their processes in decontamination. Are technicians consistently brushing below the surface of the water? Are adjustable sinks being used to accommodate employees of all heights? If a water pistol or syringe is used, are technicians spraying cannulas beneath the water or as opposed to above the water line to help control splashing and dispersal of water droplets? If glove length is too short, we should also consider lowering the water levels in the sink, such as a gallon of water instead of 10. So there is an editorial note here, and it says that both Ofsted and Brewer stress that sink water levels must remain high enough to allow instruments to be completely submerged. So if you're lowering the amount of water, make sure you're still submerging your instrumentation or that is possible. So Brewer goes on to say that our study demonstrated splashing and aerosolation risk with spraying basins in particular. These risks could be lessened by using a large brush or sponge to remove gross soil and rinsing the basin by dripping it in a water-filled sink. Although these are not perfect solutions, the aim is to reduce risk. Now the last question in this article says, now that your study highlighted some of the significant risk about PPE use and splash risk in the contamination area, what do you believe needs to happen next in the industry and within the manufacturer community to help keep technicians safe? So Offset says, first and foremost, we need the industry to step forward with better engineering controls. I believe decontamination sinks should have see-through partitions that provide splash barriers between the workers and the potentially hazardous materials, like the sort of thing we see on uh, hoods in laboratories, you know, that can be cleaned and disinfected, for example. I would love to see a continuous barrier of some sort. We also need to learn the full extent of the splashing and droplet dispersal problem with more sites doing real world research. We need to shine the light on the safety for both patients and healthcare workers, not just nurses. And then Brewer closes this up with engineering controls are imperative and this should include PPE redesign as well as a redesign of sink stations and a redesign of the entire decontamination space to allow for greater automation of processes with high aerosolation risk. Aerosolation risk is not only just for staff working in the operating room, emergency department, or other potential areas. The risk in the sterile processing department are real, and we need to educate our leaders and our community to help fuel the needed improvements. Great information. You know, uh, hats off to uh, Corey Ofsted and the Ofsted associates and and Marie Brewer uh, for one taking the time to not only do the study but also uh, taking the time to explain uh, some of the issues through this article it's good information again if if you really if you haven't uh, read the article or you know I suggest you just go onto the podcast listen to the information gives you all the information about the splashing and the PPE but really good information because I would, I would bet that there's a lot of you folks out there that are having these same issues in your decontamination department. 
you know, it's time for a change and this is one way we can do it uh, by employing the manufacturers, the sterile processing community to move forward uh, with these changes. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for, thanks for listening to uh, this article again. Well done. HSPA episode 59 is in the books. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. You know, this is a great article. Uh, I encourage you again, go back and listen to podcast episode number 53. It's going to talk all about this research study that was done. Or if you have access to the AGIC journal, uh, it's in that past AGIC journal. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the show today. Now, if you want to receive a CE for this podcast, you got to do some things here. So listen up, I'm going to try to explain it. Now, I use Apple Podcast, and so when I listen to the podcast on Apple Podcast, in the description, you know, there's a web link, and on mine it says episode website. So I click on that, and that takes me to the hosting page. So we use Blueberry, it takes me to a Blueberry hosting page, in which it has the podcast I just listened to on there. Now, if I look at that, there is a button and it says a link and it says earn CE now. I have to push that but that link and that's going to take me to the uh, e-learning my HSPA website. So the learning site from HSPA, the learning center. So from there, what you do is you have to log in. If you don't have a login, you can create one for free, but you need to log in. You need to register. There's going to be a button that says register. Hit that register button. Once you're logged in, once you're registered, then you can answer the question. And that question is, one, did you listen to the podcast? You put yes. There's a button that says mark. Here, click this for that you've listened to the podcast. Next is going to be the code. You have to answer a question. The code or question for this podcast and only this podcast is going to be Fiesta San Antonio. So when I ask you for the code, you put Fiesta San Antonio. Now, when you do this, you are going to have the option to, if you get the code right, if you put in Fiesta San Antonio, you're going to get an option to print a certificate. Or if you don't want to print the certificate, don't print it. It's automatically going to be entered into your account. So when you go to renew, that information will already be there. Okay? Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode. When's the next episode? It's always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand. So when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.